during the zenith of the civil rights movement, uh, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, became president and made a decided mark on American politics, economics, race relations, and Christianity. And none of it really for the better. In his inaugural address, LBJ proclaimed, And this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. Unconditional war on poverty in America. Let's break down that war on poverty and its implementation and the effects that we see today and how beneficial or rather detrimental these policies have been on race, religion, and family in America. From the economic chair, let's look at the results of this war on poverty from an economic standpoint. The goal of the war on poverty was to reduce the percentage of Americans who were living on poverty and to increase their self-sufficiency. Did it really work? Well, apparently not. But it may have done something more harmful, even. Let's think about it. According to the U.S. Census Bureau's own statistics and data, poverty was on the decline before the so-called war on poverty. Despite $22 trillion having been spent as of 2012 on this war, we still see roughly the same percentage of Americans living below the poverty line. So what happened to the money being spent on the less fortunate? How is it remotely possible for so much money to be gone, unaccounted for? Well, as in uh, everything with the government, there are lies, darn lies, and statistics. And in this case, we can see that the statistics are calculated in a slightly skewed way. They omit the amount spent on welfare by welfare. Let's talk about this. This may seem trivial, but $9,000 spent on each recipient is, by the way, that's just the average. That much money is enough to tip the scales in poverty when they account for severe poverty. Say someone who's making 14000 as some states define the poverty line, $14,000 a year. That's going to bump you way above nine. These people are no longer living in the mirely conditions that we connote with the war on poverty. Roughly $1 out of every $2.40 are actually reported by the U.S. Department of Labor. In these families, we can see the following conditions as noted by Robert Rector, Senior Research Fellow over at the Heritage Foundation. Roughly 80% of poor households have air conditioning. By contrast, at the beginning of the war on poverty, only about 12% of the entire U.S. population enjoyed air conditioning. Nearly three-quarters have a car or a truck. 31% have two or more cars. Nearly two-thirds have satellite or cable television. Half have a personal computer. One in seven have two or more computers. More than half of poor families with children have a video game system, such as an Xbox or a PlayStation. I didn't grow up with one of those personally. A quarter have a digital video recorder, such as a TiVo. Uh, Roughly 43% have internet access. 40% have a widescreen plasma or LCD TV. And 92% of poor households do have a microwave. So that's not to say we begrudge people of, of their possessions, but it's interesting. There's a bait and switch going on here. Why? Well, 
One would imagine that government would uh, desire to take credit for the policy working, but that's not really how the government works. Instead of lifting people out of poverty, what we see instead is continual dependence on the government. On the political standpoint, let me ask you this. Would you be better off solving people's problems or running on the same issues with a built-in voter base imprisoned by class and racial divisions? LBJ said himself, these Negroes, they're getting pretty uppity these days, and that's a problem for us. They've got something now they've never had before. The political pullback up their uppiness. Now we've got to do something about this. We've got to give them a little something, just enough to keep them down, you know, a little quiet, not enough to make a difference. For if we don't move at all, then their allies will line up against us, and there'll be no way of stopping them. We'll lose the filibuster, and there'll be no way of putting a break on all sorts of wild legislation. It'll be reconstruction all over again. Now, Johnson was no friend of the civil rights movement, but rather a brilliant tactician. Think about it. He is also quoted as saying, I'll have them in words voting Democrat for 200 years. For 200 years. That's what he was wanting to do. This is not the man of the civil rights movement. He was a Democrat politician whose party was losing power to the engine that was driving the civil rights movement. So how would Johnson change the face of the Democrat Party? These were the same people that held slaves and had enforced Jim Crow by dirty cop, gun confiscations, and lynch mobs. This would be quite the magic trick. However, if there is one thing that can make people forget the past, it is prosperity or the promise of it. During the Great Society era, LBJ exchanged the ruthless Democrat policies, reoriented the Democrat Party as the rich uncle who would buy the favor of the population that it had spent centuries oppressing. All of this was at the expense of the taxpayer. That's you and I, the people that spend the money, also of the supposed beneficiaries. Now, if you really look at what happened during the war on poverty, you'll see that although the amount of people in poverty had been trending downward for about 15 years, Three to five years after the warm poverty programs were implemented, that downward trend stopped. In fact, according to the Census Bureau's own numbers, the decline of poverty appears to be effectively arrested since the decade the war on poverty started. We know that the counting is dishonest when you consider the fact that the average welfare recipient receives $9,000 a year from the government and it's not uh, accounted for. But there's something else that is wrong here. We see a culture of dependence that has grown from the government's intervention. Why this has occurred is perhaps the most interesting result of this mishapped societal experiment. 
we see here that the anti-marriage policies of the war on poverty have created a new societal trend, the unwed mother. Indeed, this should not come as a surprise when we not only recognize the 1960s as a time of the boomer generation's rejection of traditional marriage, but we also see that many women were incentivized to have children for the welfare benefits and enjoyed a no-fault divorce settlement to boot with child support in many cases. According to Robert Rector over at uh, Heritage, today unwed childbearing and the resulting growth of single-parent homes is the most important cause of official child poverty. If poor women give birth outside of marriage were married to the fathers of their children, two-thirds would be immediately lifted out of official poverty and into self-sufficiency. Welfare state has also reduced self-sufficiency by providing economic rewards to able-bodied adults who do not work or do work comparatively little. The low level of parental work is a major cause of official child poverty and the lack of self-sufficiency we see today. Even in good economic times, the medium poor family income with children has only 1,000 hours of parental work per year. This is the equivalent of one adult working 20 hours per week. If the amount of work performed in poor families with children was increased to the equivalent of one adult working full-time throughout the year, the poverty rate among these families would drop by two-thirds. There are stories of agents, social workers, coaxing people to not marry for the benefits of this new welfare state strewn throughout the 60s and 70s. This has generated not only a reliance upon government for mothers, but a fatherless generation now live as their parents do. Single mothers and divorced or single men with no intergenerational wealth. This is the systemic discrimination in America today. We have watched society crumble beneath the weight of this sick idea that man is somehow basically good and needs the right environment to thrive in. If you remove the barriers, man can somehow lift himself out of his inadequacies. When you look at the world around you, though, it is clear to see that that is simply not the case. A famous, I wouldn't say famous, but a philosopher and economist, Amrinda Sams, he seems very contradicting to himself because in 1883, he described poverty as being absolute, as there's no matter what I do, no matter what changes I make, my capacity as me as a human being, I can only be poor, which is weird because he want, then he wants the whole world to reiterate poverty as absolute. It's, it's strange because as Christians, we know that poverty is just the cause of a broken world it's due to Adam who sinned that the world is going to deteriorate because no matter how hard we try it's the sad truth that we won't be able to save everyone and due to that cause the, wo the world that we live in is just going to slowly die and poverty is just one of those effects of that it's hard to live in a world where everything's so easily handed to us. It's hard to be in a world where all the paths that are the most easiest to take are the most sinful of ways. It's easier to work at, 
McDonald's and get fired and make more money off of unemployment. And that's just easily, you can calculate that very easily. And most people do that. Most people live that way. A man I worked with was begging me to fire him because he, he no longer wanted to work. He wanted to live off an unemployment and go travel the world. To live off an unemployment, be able to travel the world without working for it. It's difficult to live in a world as a Christian where it's easier to sin because why is the gate to destruction? And the way that the government goes about it is just we're just giving people fish to eat for the day. We're not teaching them to fish and live for a lifetime. We're going to talk about what God says about the poor because the Bible has a lot to say. So we're going to start with Proverbs nineteen seventeen. He says, He that hath pity on the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. Proverbs 28, 27. We also have a blessed promise from God. He that giveth unto the poor shall not lack, but he that hideth his eyes shall have many a curse. God has a a plan for his people to be compassionate on the poor people. In Deuteronomy, we see that God put laws in place to protect the poor. The Israelite people had just come out of profound slavery and poverty, and God wanted them to remember from where they had come. In Deuteronomy 15, 8 through 11, we see God say, But thou shalt open thy hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need and that which he wanted. Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother. And thou givest him him naught, and cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be a sin unto thee. And that seventh year was a year of release. So those that were indebted were released during that year. So this is is saying quite a lot during that time. Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him. Because that for this thing the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy works, and in all thou puttest thine hand unto. For the Lord shall, uh, for the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thy hand wide unto thy brother, to the poor and to the needy in thy land. Now, God is very compassionate to poor people. God has a lot of other things to say about lazy people. And there's a difference. The poor that are in certain situations that they can't help. The lazy are in their situations because they won't work. There's a difference. God never intended his people to be stingy. In fact, just as God had lavished his grace upon us, we are also to lavish it upon our families, communities, and strangers. We see this in 1 John 3:17. But whoso have that hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? A lack of generosity is seen here as a sign of one who does not know God. So you can't you can't walk away from somebody in need. Not when your neighbor's in need, not when your friend is in need. In Proverbs, we see that a lack of work ethic, which we just talked about, is a sinful state in God's eyes. And this is the laziness, that you're poor because you're lazy. Proverbs 10, 4, and 5 says, He becometh poor, that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent make rich. He that gathereth in the summer is a wise son, 
But he that sleepeth in the harvest is a son that causes shame. This is a person who's not going to go out and, and pull his weight and do his, do his job. Uh, we see in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, and I, I say this verse all the time, especially when my children were growing up. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. It would seem that God prefers an individual work ethic as well as an individualized charity. The government should not make you work or provide charity, but both are commanded by God. Um, Proverbs 3.9, our work is supposed to honor God. So this is where we're going to get into the tithing. For the people who I, I believe in tithing, I've done it for many years, and I found these verses to be true. If you really believe and have a heart for the Lord and you're working, you tithe because that tithe comes with a blessing. And we're going to see that in Proverbs 3, 9. The work that honors God, honor the Lord with thy substance, with the first fruits of all thine increase. So, so shall thy bar barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. This command to honor God with our wealth also comes with a promise of provision. God is true. Malachi 3, 10 and 11. I have walked the floors holding this verse. We also see that uh, in Malachi, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And that's, it's taking care of the church, the local the place where you uh, go to church and are ministered to, and where you go to minister. And it says, approve me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, and there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Now that means, rebuking the devourer means that taking care of your stuff. You work hard. doesn't mean that you're not going to have hard times, but that means God is there. And as you're working hard and you're giving unto the Lord and you're have a right heart, God's blessings are going to be there to pull you through. Um, we're not our own. It all belongs to our Heavenly Father. And when we replace church giving with government spending, we replace God with government. Government will never be God. The government's not going to sacrifice His Son on the cross for you. That's what God did. One provides supernaturally and changes men's souls. The other leaves men without hope and purpose, creating intergenerational poverty that we see in the West today. What you believe about God dictates how you will think. Our philosophies dictate how our culture behaves. Politics is simply the enforcement of cultural norms. The truth claims about God, philosophy, culture, and policies will affect what we value. When these things are in alignment, revival is possible. Amen and amen and welcome to the After the Show show where we start to talk about... Um Everything without the script. Of course, Clint, we had to talk about it with, you know, we had to get Clint off that script. <laughs> what you heard was like pure unscripted Clint. It was perfect, real Clint. That's right. He could not read it. It's just, it just did not come for him. No, so. no, no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm dyslexic and the ADHD, it's hard to follow a script at all. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. So anyway, Ms. Ms. Nikki, thoughts about intergenerational poverty. Well, I will say that I believe not every every situation is a mindset, but I believe there's a lot of poverty that is 
a mindset that is learned and is passed on. You, you actually behave what you see growing up, behave in the same manner. An alcoholic father a lot of times will produce alcoholic children. Yeah, can tell you that. Go ahead. I mean, just free ball this, just full on free form. Enjoy. You know, I had uh, grew up in alcoholic family, uh, grandparents, everybody in my family, both sides of the family, aunts, uncles, both sides of the family uh, was always a drinking party. Uh, dad stayed drunk pretty much all the time. Uh, my mother drank heavily and uh, me and my brother both grew up to uh, drink quite heavily and uh, unfortunately we both became alcoholics uh, my brother's been sober for uh, a little over four years now and I've been sober for almost 21 years now so uh, it you know it was a tough road to hoe there. Well, praise God that things are on the mend there, but some people don't don't get too far. You know, my, my I'm, I'm going to be careful what I say, but I do have family members who suffer from not only intergenerational alcoholism, mm -hmm. but also intergenerational poverty. And it comes from a mindset. Like, I'll speak to my family the family members that I have, some of them suffer due to a mindset. And what you see is hoarding. You see yes. this, this lack of ability to just let go. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and everything is, is so held tight that they're so busy prepping for loss. Yes. But yes. they never get right. around to living. Yes. See, but what changes this mindset, Steve? What, what changed your mindset? Um, Realized that, uh, for one thing, I got tired of waking up with a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the worst. Uh, you know, uh, lost lots of jobs, couldn't get to work on time because I was always waking up late. Main reason is because I never heard the alarm go off because, uh, you know, still drunk in the morning, going to bed too late because staying up drinking. And, uh, my mother's been sober for probably close to 30 years now. And, uh, and I finally convinced my brother that it was time for him to be sober and, uh, you know, be a better person. And, uh, he kind of saw the light. So, but yeah. And plus, uh, after I was, being sober, I ended up was diagnosed with epilepsy and it was, you know, another thing was if I don't stop drinking, it was uh stop or die. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that sometimes doing sometimes kids need to learn by stumbling. And I think that's what the Lord allows in our life, right? He allows hardships to come in our <laughs> He allows Sorry. stuff to come into our lives so we can stumble and we can trip. So he can build us up because now Steve has his testimony to show not only to his family, but to others. And that's, I think that's where our many sense falls, right? Because if you look at his life, he's a very accomplished man. He makes a lot of money. 
But then on the other hand, he says poverty is absolute. But following his logic, as a kid, he was poor. His family was just, they, were, they had nothing because he lived in India. Yeah. And he was just, he, right. that, he was poor. Like, <laughs> well, that was. And that's an interesting dichotomy there because or it's an interesting comparison is, is, is the word I'm looking for. Because you have the West where it's not a zero sum game. It's, it's a function of how can we generate something new, whereas a lot of people see it as a zero-sum game where there is, there's no hope because everyone else already has the pie. And, that, and that's something that is, is not a new belief. It's a very old belief, the idea that you can create capital, you can create something new. That really only came with the Judeo-Christian ethic. Yeah, that's that's a mindset that you have to take on. And I think uh, a lot of times, um, a lot of times the mindset, you know, I grew up and I didn't have a lot. I don't I don't know if we were really desperately poor. I mean, I always had a roof over our head. We always had heat in the wintertime, didn't need air conditioning in New York right. State, but we always had food. I always had clothing. I mean, we didn't get everything you wanted. We had everything we needed. Correct. And I look at my childhood now and I am really grateful because it taught me to be very appreciative of life. When you know you have to go out there and you have to, my mom had a very strict um, schedule for food. You just didn't go in the refrigerator and eat food because it was a, it was very strict because the money was, there wasn't a lot of money, but we didn't go without food. We, we didn't go without food, but it is a mindset growing up. You, you think of, well, you go to school and you see the other kids that have the brand new cars and the you know, real big houses and something. And you think that, well, you're just not good enough. And so the mindset to say you are good enough, you can go on and get a college education. You can go on and get those better jobs. That is something that I believe the word of God is, is in positive force for that. Not to get to name it, claim it here, but he will provide for your needs. That doesn't mean a Lamborghini. That's right. But, but everything on earth is his. It says the the stores of heaven are his. You know, the, the land, the sheep, the cattle on a thousand hills, they're all his. And if you just understand that, all you have to do is talk to him. Now, again... I'm not talking about Lamborghini Ferrari territory, but he miraculously provides. I know you have stories of that. I know I, I, everyone in this room has stories of God miraculous provide, miraculously providing. In some ways, it. my favorite story, my favorite story from me is my parents and I were, this is an unnecessary thing. This is after we our, our home and business burned down and mom said, hey, I want to grill. Some of you know the story. Mom said, I want a, I want a, Pager, a Traeger pellet grill and it's on sale and I want a grill because I would like to be able to, to do, you know, smoke turkey and whatever. And we didn't have a lot of facilities for it. So dad goes, how much is it? She tells him. And dad goes, oh, honey, I think we're going to go ahead and pray to the Lord. And if he decides to provide the money, you know, then, then we'll... Dear Lord, if it's your will that we buy a Traeger pellet-fed grill, please, Lord, provide for it. Four minutes later, we pull up to the mailbox. We open yep. the mail. Yep. There is a check 
in the mail with a note on it. Note says, Dear Fiala family, we've been praying for a few months now about a very specific sum of money. We don't know why, but God led us to send it to you. It was within three to four dollars after tax what the pellet grill cost. Mm-hmm. I look at dad. I said, dad, if you hadn't prayed that foolish prayer, we could have spent that money on something that we needed. But <laughs> <laughs> see, and it's evident in my life, right? Cause I, when my mom lived in California with my sperm donor, right? He was, he was Marine, right? Well, yeah. I don't like to call him my dad because all he did was donate sperm and then called it a quits. He's your I father. Hear you. I hear you. But not your dad. And so then Big difference. we we lived in California. We lived on a a marine base and 21 palms, palm something. That's all I remember. Um, we lived with nothing. 29 palms. They, they gave us they gave us nothing. A couple pots and pans. And that's about it. But what is my mom supposed to do when the man on, takes the vehicle, our only vehicle, and goes out drinking every single day? Yeah. It's rough because he would come home and he would beat me and my mom because when he would go off to his tours, he would be dark because, you know, it'd be like Afghanistan. It'd be it, dude, it'd be hot and he'd come back dark. But I was light because that was his original skin tone. And he would and his mom She's an evil lady. Okay. Don't get me. She's an evil lady. She was like, that's not your kid. Like who are the kids going to be? She's my mom literally lives in a Marine base with no one else around her. What is she going to do? She don't have no vehicle. We had to walk to a seven day Adventist church. Oh dude. They were so lovely. We we were, my mom, as we're growing up, she would tell us to sing songs, read palms to forget about the hunger. But one day we just, Man, it was rough for my mom. And a couple of church people knocked on the door and they were like, hey, um, because clearly they weren't just in the area because we're literally in the in a Marine base. Right. They were like, hey, we came because in California, you can buy boxes of strawberries like they're some big boxes. Well, I was little, so I think they're big boxes um, and two cheese pizzas from Little Caesars. They came with three boxes and two cheese pizzas from Little Caesars. Not knowing our situation, because when you go to church, tidy up. No one needs to know nothing, right? That's how I grew up. They came in, and they not only fed me and my sister, but my mom as well, because my mom wouldn't eat to feed us. But that's how welfare always has worked in America. If you go all the way back to the 1830s, when de Tocqueville was coming through, Alexis de Tocqueville, he said, the primary... The primary thing about America that's interesting is that they take care of the poor, not through government programs, but through charity, such as churches. That's how we are to act. That's how we are to act. If you are not living in that way as a church body, can I humbly suggest to you that you're doing it wrong? If 3%, your 3.5% minimum donations for your 501c3 status is all that you give, May I humbly suggest that you're doing it wrong. And if you're worried about how much money you have, and by the way, most people who don't do that are not worried about how much they have. God does provide. He does provide, whether it's through pizza, Little Caesars and strawberries, 
or whether it's through things that are just like God just flexing his muscles and saying, I love you. That was just the, the Bible verses that we read earlier. That was the Bible verses in action. And those people, when you are giving to somebody and you know you're meeting a need, you are internally blessed yes. and it makes you joyful and happy that you help somebody else. I remember one time um, going to a, a restaurant and there was the, a woman there with a broken down car and with a, a child, they were hungry. They, she, her car broke down. She was trying to call. Well, you, you, we bought them food, okay, so that they could eat because little boy was hungry. And while she was waiting for the people to come and help her, you give them food. There's just, it's just, if you're a Christian, I don't see how you can't think about doing something like that. And one of the things I always say when people say, well, you shouldn't do that is, well, one day you'll be in a situation, pass it along. Because one day you'll be where you can meet somebody else's need. Amen. Um, I'm sorry, but that pay it. What bothers me most is the Starbucks pay it forward thing, the trend. I'm sorry. That bothers the. Why? Not, not that kind of pay it forward. Because if you're in Starbucks and you're paying the person in, behind you, that's pointless because they're Starbucks for a reason. You literally can take that money and put it somewhere else. And that it bothers me when people are like, ah, oh, pay it forward because my mind goes to automatically to the Starbucks thing. And it just makes me so upset. No, you Did asked first, how much is the order? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Did y'all watch? If oh. my Did... coffee's six bucks and theirs is 25, I might not pay it. Did y'all see that Matt Walsh? Matt Walsh actually did a, did a whole thing on that. He can't. He cancels stuff every so often, or actually every day he cancels something. And uh, today we're canceling the pay it forward movement. And he, he gets to the punchline after 15 minutes of laying out the story, but he goes, and there I was. I paid $48 for the five macchiato lattes and three frappuccinos <laughs> in the back. And uh, I had a $2 coffee tinged with the taste of betrayal. He probably had nothing but a black coffee. You know, yeah. I had... <laughs> Had gone uh, one time. I, I'd gone to my neurologist for my episode a couple of years ago, and uh, I'd already had uh, a bus ticket to get home, and I had money and some money in my in my pocket. It was a twenty dollar bill, and I come out of the building, doctor's building, and. You know, at times, you know, you really got to pay attention and listen. And sometimes we don't tune our ears to listen to the Lord at times because we get called up in, you know, worldly things at times. And, you know, and I'd been praying for a while to, to have better ears so that I can hear the Lord better so I can do and do better. And I come walking out, and the Lord says, you need to go over here to this little table in this chair and go sit down. You need to go over here and go sit down. And it was this, like, this Chick-fil-A, and they had two outside tables. And I was like, you know, I'm not really hungry, but the Lord tells me I need to go over here and sit at this table. So I go over, and I sit down. And this gentleman comes walking out, and he goes over, and he sits at this other table. And he's eating nothing but a little thing of fries. That's it. 
He bought him some fries. No drink, no sandwich, no anything. And he's talking on the phone to his wife. He had come down to go to the doctor, but he didn't. He's talking to her saying, and I could overhear him. I wasn't trying to listen to his conversation, but he was talking loud because he was bothered because he wasn't going to be able to make it home because he didn't have enough gas in his vehicle to get home. And this was like at the medical center. And he was telling her, look, I'm going to end up running out of gas somewhere along this way. This is where I'm going to be traveling along this path. And whenever you or my son get off work, come along with a gas can to find me because I'm going to be sitting on the side of the road and I'm not going to make it very far because it's my gas gauge shows I'm below a quarter of a tank. And I'm listening to this guy and I go, huh, no wonder I'm sitting here. No wonder. So I take this $20 bill. This was the last money I had on me. I took it. He gets off the phone and I said, sir, excuse me. He goes, yeah, man. I said, sir, I don't mean to butt in and I wasn't trying to listen to your conversation, but I heard you don't have any gas. I said, sir, I'd like to give you this here. He goes, what? I said, I want to give you this for gas so you can get home to your family. That guy was ecstatic. He just couldn't believe someone was giving him money so he could get home. Yeah. So I said, sir, can I can I go ahead and pray for you? He was like, oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, sure. And he was an, uh, he was an older gentleman. I, I'm 62, and I guess he was probably late 60s, maybe early 70s. And uh, he just couldn't believe someone was giving him money to get home for gas. He says, this is going to get me home. I can't believe someone's giving me money. I said, sir... You take this. He says, well, give me your address so I can send you, you know, a check for this. I said, sir, you don't owe me anything. You take this in good faith because the Lord told me I needed to sit here for a reason. And this is the reason right here. Amen. And it's like, you got to listen. You well, got to have theirs and you got to be prepared to listen. Well, that's. That is how charity is supposed to work. And, and again, I understand someone's going to add me in the comments here. Yes, I understand that this is impromptu, but the best, the most aid I've ever received in my life that again, I've never been on the government dole. I've always avoided it. Even when I was penniless and literally homeless. Okay. God still provided through the church. There was immediately a family when I lost everything. I had a backpack. I had a backpack and we had a, one car. Everything else that was working was destroyed. I had a backpack and we had the family van. Members of the church took us in. That is how charity works. 
We stayed with one family for a week. The company that my mom was working for, they gave her a couple of weeks in a hotel. So we stayed there for a little while. And then another brother in Christ, love you, Modesto. He gave us a lease that he had partially or completely vacated. No longer needed this house that he was leasing in, in a nice part of town, actually. And God continued to provide. We didn't know where provision was coming from one day to the next, but God provided through his church. I'm not saying God will provide, leave it up there. I'm saying the church needs to be a part of this. That is, that is how we do this. Instead, what we've done is we've allowed government to do that. So I do want to kind of shift a little bit back to the chairs, wrapping up the night, because we've been here for a while. I want to wrap over to the chair of theology here. When, you know, you, you said something at the end there that was very poignant. When the church is replaced by government, what are we saying about our belief in God? When we do that in any sphere, let alone in the sphere of charity. Well, we do it. What we do is we put our faith that government becomes our provider and not God, our provider. And um, it's, it just, I think, robs you in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, and, and we have to be careful because what we're talking about is people who have the ability to take care of themselves, but choose not to take care of themselves versus people who, um, can't take care of themselves, uh, through maybe a, a medical issue and they don't have any family that'll take care of them. Or there are, there are people that generally are poor and have no one to help them and they physically cannot do anything about it. But the downside is the government programs attract and keep lazy people Grifters. that are not going to go out and get a job or better themselves in any way. Well, you look at a significant amount of the families. I, I, don't quote me. I was just looking at the notes. I'm sorry, but it's a significant amount of those who are below the poverty line. It's either a third or two thirds, whatever. They work a thousand hours a year. Mm. You know, if they would just do more than 20 hours a week, they may be above the poverty line. But I understand this. I get it. Because I've worked with people who made allowances illegally. They would uh, do it based on contract work. And they would make sure that every job was below the 1099 threshold. So that everyone that was on unemployment could stay on unemployment. And, you know, mm -hmm. when I ran to people like that, I was like, dude, you... You got to fix this. You know, the problem, John Arthur, we didn't get really into this, is that what the government is providing your housing and food stamps for you to go out and actually work. And I'm going to say this. If you have a degree, you can go out and get a job that probably can pay your bills. If you yeah. don't have a degree, you can't. And so they're not going to work above the thousand hours because they'll lose housing and food stamps and their utilities won't get paid. And they're not going to make enough money to overcome that. So it's a real problem. It is a problem built out of dependency. Mm -hmm. Intergenerational. And it's, yeah, 100%. It's intergenerational poverty is what you see that's been created. And, it, you know, there is systemic discrimination in America today. I'll say it one more time. It is the welfare state. The Great Society, LBJ. I mean, 
that man was not a lover of of uh, people with darker skin. He was not a lover of people with darker darker skin. One, he was quoted uh, in citation and link in in the description down there somewhere. He was quoted as saying to a chauffeur when the chauffeur said, "I'd rather be called by my name and not boy." He said, "You'll always be a bleep, and no one will ever think more of you than that." That's why they needed welfare. He's a clever strategy uh, uh, developer there. Although it wasn't even his strategy, it was it was long term democratic ploy to get people on the dole so that they could maintain that power because they saw they they were losing the civil rights movement. They were losing that moment. And now you, you'll see link in the description to some of the people who actually defend the Democrats as somehow the saviors of the African-American through the great cities policy or the great society, rather the great society policies. Uh, guys, the Republicans were the ones that pushed for the civil rights act. The Democrats realized that they had lost. So what did they do? They tried to enslave the population that they had been oppressing the whole time. And they still do with a different form of dependence on government going over the chair of philosophy. You've got a lot of folks who say stuff like man is basically good in the world that we see today. What is wrong with that statement? Everything man is inherently evil, you know, no matter it's just because it's easier to sin, right? Why does the gate of destruction narrows the path of righteousness, right? It's easier to to follow what government stands is deemed good, right? It's okay to drink. It's okay to smoke. It's okay to do this. Well, if the government said it's okay, and I have that self-gratification at that very second, why not do it, right? By all worldly standpoints, yeah, go ahead, go do it. But... In the perspective of long term, it's devastating. It's it's a devastating thing, right? Because, you know, when you smoke weed, it's the high can last between an hour or two hours, depending on what weed you smoke, right? And if it's a cart, it can be it's dangerous stuff. It can increase or decrease, but it can also leave you paralyzed if people mess with it. If people don't sell it correctly or people not doing it properly. You can become paralyzed and, you know, it's a scary factor because, you know, when I when I was doing weed, yes, I used to do weed and drinking at the same time at school. I was sitting in the gym and I had just bought a new cart from some dude and I had used it. Right. I didn't follow a protocol where you're supposed to open it up, taste it. And then, you know, if it tingles your tongue, it's actually nicotine. That's bad. Um, I sat there and uh, I'm over here smoking and I'm already I'm already wasted. Right. But. And then I couldn't feel my legs. And I was like, it scared me because I couldn't feel my legs. And then you hear stories about like, yeah, be careful. Some people become paralyzed, you know, because they put horse tranquilizers in that crap. They put some, they put some hard stuff in there. I couldn't feel my legs. And I was just like, it, it was rough. I was so high. I didn't even like, it didn't process into me until after when my buddy was like, dude, you feel okay? I'm like, okay, what happened? He was like, you couldn't feed your legs. That's so, a problem. <laughs> was that like a self-realization moment for you where a moment of self-awareness rather, where it was kind of like a turning point? Um, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty big idiot. So 
I wouldn't say that was a turning point. I was, it stopped me from smoking carts and started to go into the actual weed, which brought me to a lot more scarier people. But in hindsight, all that can be traced back to what I was actually doing to start with, right? You can always trace your sins back to their original sin. And it's always the most innocent of things. It's so scary how you you fall in a mindset. We've been talking about mindset most of the night. You fall in a mindset that is so foggy that you can't see in front of you anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't matter what the sin is, whether it's sloth, whether it's gluttony in the form of drugs and alcohol. It's the same trap. Mm. It's the same trap. It's just rebranded. Satan's really boring. He's not that imaginative. I'm sorry. Just <laughs> look both ways here. But just I will say liar. he's a good liar and he's really good at rebranding. Yep. He's really good he, at he's rebranding. He's a copycat. He can't come up with his own stuff. Correct. Yep. So Mr. Steve. Yes, sir. Just kind of wrapping up your thoughts on the day on, on the war on poverty. You can do the culture chair or the chair of politics. I know you like the chair of culture. Um, just wrapping up, what do we see with the with the culture of dependence and how how we've structured that? How how it's really just it's really changed our society from the nineteen sixties till today. We see, and we were looking at those charts where unwed mothers from nineteen forties in nineteen fifties there was an increase, but in the nineteen sixties to now it's a straight up curve. How has that affected intergenerational habits and poverty? Oh man, that, that's a good question, John Arthur. Um, as far as the poverty line goes, and, and if you look at the statistics, I mean, it's, it's not a gradual climb. It's like, it's a hockey you know, stick. climbing up Mount Everest, it goes straight up, man, practically. And it is sad because the single motherhood statistics since the beginning of welfare has climbed tremendously. Now, this doesn't just affect one particular group of people or one race or anybody that's come from a certain country, this affects all types of people that have a tendency to get on welfare. And it, it doesn't, just because you might be in a certain poverty line doesn't mean you're lazy, but there are people who have a tendency to stay there and that that's lazy people. They stay there for a reason because they feel like it's it's something they should have instead of, you know, it's basically what it is. It's, if you think about it, redistribution of wealth. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's the Marxist promise. Exactly. And it creates, and I don't want to step on the economic toes here, but... What it does is it creates another economy of its own. And, yeah. and you and I had talked about that before the podcast. It's own a, different economy that the welfare class creates. 
you have a whole set of protected infrastructures. You were talking about apartments off off air, right? And how you have a entire group of contractors, builders, excuse me, you name it, where they have a guaranteed income where they do not have to perform the way they would for anyone else. And they can perform that way because it's a government job. It's a G job. They can do yep. whatever they want with it. Good enough for government work. It's good enough for government work. Correct. And, and there's a reason that saying came into effect. Mm-hmm. And that's why, and that's part of it. Exactly. By the public-private partnerships, PPP. Some people will actually call it by that, and I say, no. Actually, go ahead. It deserves all the ire it needs. Uh, Public-private partnerships are the worst possible thing. You want to talk about, by the way, industrialized prison complex. We've talked about this on this show. One of the worst things that's ever happened to America. You should not have private ownership of prisons, because then you have people who want to keep nonviolent offenders in prison for longer because they get paid by the day by the bed. And so they will intentionally cause problems, blame people. I've seen all sorts of garbage. Uh, So prison system should be reformed out of that public-private partnership thing, as most everything that sits in that realm. On the note of the economic side, God made you with a drive and with the skills, abilities, talents, and interests to change your situation, your status. The thing that differentiates you from being nothing to someone is almost always need or desperation. Without desperation, without need, you will never become everything that God made you to be. You want to know why evil exists, why God allows it? A, because of free will. B, you grow when you are desperate. You take away desperation, you lose a lot. You lose a lot. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, like, comment, share, subscribe, all of those good things. And uh, if you didn't, well, I'm sorry, smash that dislike button twice. Could I say just one thing before we... Yeah. You know, scoot out of here, John Arthur. I, I'm going to kind of jump into the chair of politics real quick here. Good enough. And, uh, we won't make you move. <laughs> I want, want you to know that um, just to make sure that the government wasn't beaming bad things into me here to say and, and be on their part oh, to no. say good <laughs> things about the government, let everybody know. I, I wore my tinfoil hat here so that I could speak freely on everybody's behalf so that everybody out there knows that I'm not speaking on the government's behalf. And this is my own words and what I'm saying. Okay. Here. So I'm kind of keeping it right there on the low down to keep these things from happening. So, you know, I'm just making sure. If you're still here, if you're still here, we apologize. (laughs) We apologize. (laughs) Bye-bye. Okay. Okay. (laughs) If you're still still here, uh, what's wrong with you? Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That's the real answer. That's the real question we're talking about. We're going to go around the room real quick, and uh, we're going to say, 
what is your favorite story of God's grace? If you already shared it, just go ahead and point it. But what is your favorite story of God's grace, God's provision through the church or through someone that the Lord led? I will say, um, I have so many, I have so many, but I'll just say this, this one is that when Charlie and I got married, we were only 18 and 19 years old. And I don't know what we were thinking, but we were just, we were going to get married and didn't even have a job. <laughs> we were getting married. And my church stood, uh, came forward and a lady from my church for the wedding gift made my flowers. Another lady baked the cake. Um, several ladies brought food. I mean, we paid very little for the, the wedding and it was just by, you know, everything, everybody just came together and put the wedding together. Amen. So that's just one of many, but yes. Hmm. No, you're not married. I'm not married. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not married. I think that's a good thing. Um, when I was Girls, going he's through... single, he's single. Anyway, <laughs> stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I was going through, let's say poor decision-making, well, let's call it out as if when I was sitting through my life, right? I was, man, it was bad. And it was just a couple of years ago when I was just doing terrible things. It's rough, but the truth of the matter, the fact is that the woman that I thought was going to be the one for my life told me that I was the epitome of her life, that I was never going to be more than a screw up than my sperm donor. She knew the whole story and she said, you're just like him. And at that moment, it was through God's grace. I didn't die because at that point I was high emotions running wild. I wanted to kill myself. You know, it, it was bad. It was bad. But only through God's grace that, you know, it's rough, but I believe that God told her to say that. I believe that God wanted me to hear those words from her because my mom had talked to me. My dad had talked to me. My uncle had talked to me. All these other people in my life have talked to me and I've ignored them. But only now going through that, that I've done, that I know that what they've told me that I should remember and cherish. Even what she said, it helped me get out of that state of mind. Amen. I would have to say that one of the most fascinating things that the Lord did for me was, well, he did two amazing things, was manage to keep the epilepsy that I had, because I'd been told by my neurologist some very bad things about the type of epilepsy that I had, that it would do nothing but progressively get so bad to a point to that I would have to have this surgery that was basically almost kind of like, you know, a lobotomy to some point to where I was going to have all kinds of problems with memory, speech, and all these sorts of things in my life have hard times of being able to uh, be able to do like just basic skills 
uh, a lot of the people that he dealt with, 33% of his patients with the type of epilepsy that I had died in their sleep after like 15 years. I've had it for over 20 years now. And when I was diagnosed, I was um, like a first degree black belt in the art that I study. Since that time, and I've managed to be able to achieve a rank that is amazingly high, even though having epilepsy and be able to teach for, for 20 years and, um, and achieve the rank that I have over so many years, which is like a fifth degree in jujitsu, which was, you know, almost kind of like unheard of, especially with someone with the problems, you know, being an epileptic but still being able to retain the knowledge and being able to do it, which is like hard to believe with my doctor. He, they're just amazed that I'm able to, to do the things that I do and still be able to do them. Amen. Amen. So, and it's all of God's blessing. Man, y'all went deep. I was going to go light. Y'all went Deep. Uh, it is, man. Now so, you have to go deep too. I, I have a vision, man. Bro, bro, I, I, I'll, be, I'll be succinct. Bless I'll be succinct. every day. I'll be succinct. The best, Bam. my favorite, my, I've got a lot of favorites, but one of my favorites about the church providing for my family and I is right after the fire. I've told you about how people provided homes, people provided clothing, people provided, you know, the church came out and met our needs. Uh, there was a home that someone you know, blent us and the church filled it with furniture. I mean, that is how we are supposed to act as Christians. We are supposed to help the fatherless, the widow, the homeless, the people who have been downtrodden. So make sure, make sure as you go about this week that, uh, you think about that. And if there's a way that you can give, by the way, as someone is part of the homeless ministry, I'm going to say something. I don't always give to homeless people unless I get a chance to pray with them. Okay. And I know that that's kind of a, you know, you might think whatever about that, but, uh, saying if you have a chance to give, if you have a chance for your church to become involved in a positive ministry, something that isn't just funding someone's, uh, solar Quonset hut off, off the, uh, I 10, but you know, an actual ministry, consider getting involved in that it's well, well worth it and it uh sometimes it helps with that said if you like this podcast thank you hit that button we love you bye-bye bye bye, bye. bye.